Well, there's one particular verse um, that I believe the Lord would like us to focus on this morning from this passage, and it's um, from verse 6. One phrase that I'd like you to, if not, you might say it out loud, but just run through in your mind again and again as we look at this passage. Verse 6, it is too small a thing for you to be called my servant. It is too small a thing for you to be called my servant. That's the key verse. It's a key verse for the kingdom of God. It's a key verse for our understanding uh, God's plans for us in our own lives. And it's a key verse that comes again and again as a theme throughout uh, Scripture, throughout God's dealings with his people. Here in this passage, Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel. They're in exile. This is the 6th century BC. They're going through a terrible time. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people have been taken captive into Babylon. They're estranged from their land. There's no temple for them to worship. They're in slavery. You know, this is a terrible, terrible situation. And it's a message of hope. And in that situation, what God is saying to them is, I know that you would be happy simply to be returned to uh, Judea, to Judah, uh, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt and the temple to be restored. I know that would fulfill all your dreams. But it is too small a thing. You see what he's saying? It's too small a thing for me to merely do that. I'm going to do much more than that. And then we get into territory where Isaiah begins to speak about not just the people of Israel, but Jesus as the fulfillment of the people of Israel. It will be the case that not only will you be restored, but my, the, my light, the good news, the, my salvation, my truth, my life will flow out of you to all nations. And you who are a servant to a, a, a vassal to Babylon or to Assyria, to you who bow down to other kings, kings will bow down to you. Princes will bow down. Kings will stand up in your presence. And there he's talking prophetically about Jesus and the kingdom of God, which will uh, go from coast to coast and sea to sea and the farthest nations and to all the islands and sort of the whole world. So you see how that's central to the passage. It's too small a thing. Their hopes are pinned on salvation from exile. And God is saying, yeah, that's just, that's just the beginning. And we get that again, again through scripture. Another great example would be uh, Joseph, who was a, uh, a Jacob's son, Joseph, you know, the, the guy with the amazing coat. In prison, he was literally a servant before that. He was taken into his slavery. He's, he served um, Potiphar and was falsely accused and ended up in prison for years and years and years. And he would have been happy to have his freedom restored, wouldn't he? You know the story. He would have been, he would have felt like salvation had come if he'd just been let out of prison. Maybe given another servant's job or put back to Potiphar's house or got justice somehow. But God, for God, that was too small a thing. You understand? He took him out of prison and he raised him up to be a prince in Egypt, second in command, practically the ruler of Egypt. Gave him power and saved his whole family, brought salvation for those who are in famine. You see, it's too small a thing. You see how that's central to the passage? That's what God wants to say to us this morning. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. He comes home, he's wasted all his father's money, he's lived this uh, awful life, he falls down before his father and he begins to make a confession, I've sinned, father, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, um, but somehow in your mercy, was there room for me in your house? Can I come back and be your servant? And as he's giving his apology, he would have been happy, wouldn't he, if the father said to him, you know what, I'll give you a roof over your head, I'll give you food to eat, yeah, you can't have any more money. (laughs) 
because you're not to be trusted. And you won't have any responsibility because you're not to be trusted. But yes, you're my son now. You can come and be secure and safe and you won't have to eat pig squill anymore. But that's not what he says, is it? <laughs> he interrupts his speech. He says, you're not my son. He takes the, the ring off his finger, the robe, uh, his, his, his uh, fatherly robe, puts it around him. He honours him with a sacrifice. And he restores him to sonship. It's too small a thing to do mere justice, uh, to do a uh, merely merciful thing, and to restore him to security, to make him a servant. It's too small a thing. He treats him as a son. And that's really where, that last example is really where this verse directly applies to us. To our lives. Because God loves you like that. And God saves you like that. When it comes to our own understanding of God's dealing with our lives, we are very content to be saved, aren't we? It's more than we deserve. That God would forgive our sins and give us heaven and give us his presence, you know, and uh, take the, the, our debt away and allow us to serve him for the rest of our days is more, far, far more than we deserve. And we rightly rejoice in his salvation. We're so content to be rescued. And God says to us, that's not all. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. Like King David, we would be happy to be doorkeepers in the house of God. He says that, doesn't he? I'd be content to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, and yet, wonderfully, he'd be content for a day in the house of God, and yet, wonderfully, God adopts us, welcomes us in, he robes us in priestly robes, and he invites us into the Holy of Holies to enjoy fellowship with him as son. This Extra abundant salvation is what God wants to speak to us about this morning. This shift which says, it's not that talking about salvation and being happy with being safe is uh, bad in any way. It's that God wants to blow our minds with the, the scope of what he has in store for us. He wants to, 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 to fill us abundantly with all the riches of Christ. To make sure that we understand that we are co-heirs with him. Isn't that wonderful? You know, this change of identity profoundly affects, in particular, I think, two things that are connected. First of all, it changes our perspective of what we go through in this life. To the the Jewish people in exile, when Isaiah writes this, he's saying to them, isn't he, what you're going through, this difficult circumstance you're going through, is not for nothing. And he enables them to, in that moment, even while they're suffering, to begin to have hope. And in hope, there's joy. It's not for nothing. He gives them an understanding of God's dealings with them. They were viewing themselves as merely victims of history, of circumstance, maybe even of God's harsh dealing with them. And he reminds them of their identity. I called you. (laughs) Before the world was made, I named you. Yes, I've hidden you. Yes, you may think of yourself as insignificant, but I have a purpose for you. And that sense of identity, like God has saved you for a reason and and he wants you to understand that right now is what gives us joy in this life. 
That sense of God has a purpose for me. It's not just about what happens at the end. It's understanding of what's happening to me now gives me joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, isn't it? But that is intimately related to something we've already heard a little bit about this morning. Think of something like Alpha. Our willingness, our freedom, and our, our enthusiasm about sharing our faith with people is intimately tied with our own enjoyment of our faith. Isn't that true? Graham can say, 24 years ago, I think I got that right, I went to Alpha, because, and, and stand up here and advertise Alpha because it's radically changed his life. Paul can give a testimony about the Dalit guy from India because there's this radical transformation. He's, we can see that benefit. It gives that joy. And, and that guy went home and showed his 50 friends via WhatsApp, which I can absolutely believe from my dealings <laughs> with uh, Indian people at Gilgal. Um, he's showing them because God has transformed his life. He's full of that joy, isn't he? If we want to be free in sharing the gospel, if we want to be enthusiastic about it and, and full of you know, uh, excitement and, and be motivated to do it. We ourselves have to be enjoying it. When we enjoy it, we tell people. When we tell people and they get saved, guess what happens? We enjoy it. <laughs> because not only are we seeing it in our lives, we have this added thing of seeing it change other people's lives. We get to see all the riches of God funneled through someone else's life. You see, all, you, know, you see them set free in particular ways. You see them come to life in particular ways. You see God transforming their lives. The two things go together and they feed each other. They're related. God wants us to have that first love all the time. He wants it all the time. You know, Jesus um, had some hard words to say to the Pharisees and um, scribes and Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Way to, way to go, encouraging someone to evangelize. <laughs> it's harsh, isn't it? But actually, we need to hear that. If evangelism is a mere duty... We are either not going to do it or we're going to do what the Pharisees did and be sharing something that isn't. If we're doing it because, you know, uh, we're up the front doing a kind of drum, drum roll cheerleading, whatever, we're not going to do it. Or we're going to do it badly. If we're not experiencing the, the riches of our salvation now, we're, just not, we're not going to be moved to share the gospel. We might, we might do it like out of tribalism because it makes us feel secure like someone else has become a Christian, you know, like when someone famous becomes a Christian, it makes us feel good, because somehow that validates our whole faith, like Justin Bieber or something. <laughs> you know, we might do it out of tribalism, we might do it out of duty, or most likely, in my experience, we just don't do it. Do so you see how those two things go together? You see how that might be a word for us? A week and a bit before an alpha call. <laughs> Our joy is intimately bound up with our fruitfulness as Christians. Our identity as those who are called is bound up in the fact that God has called us for a reason. God wants us to have his joy and he wants our joy to overflow and draw people to him so that we have more joy. So that's the big point. And I'm just going to run through Six, if I've counted correctly, and they're going to be 
concise. I'm going to keep my eye on the clock. <laughs> Six specific ways where we can be sons, not slaves. Where we can, or we can be, uh, we can experience sonship, not servility. Where we're being like God's children, not just being servile in our faith. Six ways in which often we are servile, and which God says, actually, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant. I want you to realise your identity as my children. And each point, I think, God has put on my heart to share with you guys specifically. This is not everything I could think of. You can believe that, can't you? Yeah. I probably could have done 12. And <laughs> These are six things I think God has put on my heart. Each one will, I think, be applicable to us. Each one is also serves to make reflect back on that point. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. So first one is this. God wants us to live in freedom, not fear. This is actually the same point as I made last week. I'm just being cheeky and preaching it again, just very quickly. God wants us to live in freedom, not fear, in terms of suffering, in particular. In particular. So we've got the context here. Um, we've got this, uh, this difficult situation that... Um, in the passage that uh, the people, are, uh, the Jewish people are going through, and God is saying to them, "I want you to understand what I'm doing. I don't just want you to hold on and know that somehow you're going to come through this." You see, He's calling them to a higher understanding. He's not just saying, "You can trust me. I'm God. You don't have to worry about the details." He doesn't. He's not just saying, "I'm good and I'm all powerful, and you can just just trust, and everything will be okay." Because if we do that, that puts us in a position, the best we can hope for is a kind of uh, stoical, you know what, I know God is good, this bad thing that I'm going through, I'm not going to curse him, like, you know, Job was tempted to, I'll I'll say my Redeemer lives, but that's all I'm stuck with. When we we approach life that way, what happens is we tend to go through life full of fear. We're waiting for the next bad thing to come around the corner. And we're like, okay, it's bad, but God will get me through it. And that's all we hope for. Now that's not, in one sense, that's not bad, right? Just trusting that God will get us through things isn't a bad thing, is it? It's okay to be a a servant. It's okay to be a doorkeeper in the house of God and say, you know, God's going to get me through this, to be able to trust him. But God wants us to move from civility into sonship, from being slaves into being his children. He wants us to move from fear to freedom. So, as we heard last week, when we're faced with a difficult situation, to be a child of God means to listen for God's voice, to, to, to love in response, and to expect, to expect God to fill that place, that experience, with the life of the Spirit. So, do not be anxious about all things. That's listening for God's voice, isn't it? But in all things, pray, bring your petitions to him, and he will give you the peace that passes all understanding. That's a little illustration of that. And when we begin to do that, I finished last week by saying, we are set free from fear. Instead of worrying about what's around the corner and thinking, okay, another thing where I'm going to hold on and God's going to get me through this, we begin actually to become excited. Something may be around the corner, but this is another opportunity for me to see God's love in action in my life or in the life of the people around me. This is another opportunity for me to learn how to say back to God, I love you. This is going to produce amazing fruit in my life. Peace, joy, patience, kindness. It's going to 
rub off the sharp edges. It's going to change my character. It's going to change the people around me. You know, good things are going to flow out of my life because whatever's coming, coming around the corner. Have you, is your faith big enough to believe that God can give you that experience in suffering and trials? That's what God is calling us to. That's sonship. I think that's incredibly liberating. I'm not saying I walk in it or live in it all the time. I'm mostly moving from that first thing to that second thing. But in my experience, God in his faithfulness again and again has moved me from merely in the beginning, I don't think I can get through this, to I think God's going to get me through this, to I can't wait to see what God is going to do through this. And you know where I think he's moving me to and where he wants to move us all to is the absolute freedom to not just endure suffering, but even to seek suffering for the sake of God's glory and for the love of others around us. Not in some morbid way. You're not, not like throwing ourselves in front of a bus or something like that. But absolute freedom, the freedom of sons, the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he went to the cross, says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. And that's what God is calling us to. Not just to endure his plans, not just to survive his plans for us, but to cooperate fully with, with his plans for us. So he wants to move us from fear to freedom. Does that make sense? Okay. Secondly then, God wants us well, I'm just going to say what I've written down. Vocation, not vacation. <laughs> I'm quite pleased with myself about that one. <laughs> vocation, not vacation. Uh, maybe it doesn't fit, I don't know. But I was so pleased with it. <laughs> you know, I think um, these prosperity gospels guys get a bit of a bad rap. The end. No. <laughs> I'll qualify, I'll qualify. Do you know the guys I mean? Like guys like Joel Osteen. And I'm going to say something nice so I can name him by name. He's, you know, <laughs> handsome chap, big white teeth, slick back hair. You know, and he's telling everyone how much God loves them and how much God wants to bless them and you can live your best life now. Do you know what I think they get that sometimes we miss is that God really wants to bless us. That's true, isn't it? And yeah, maybe they get some of the details wrong about, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily through money or, you know, perfect circumstances, like he blesses us through suffering, he blesses us through poverty, all those things, you know but one thing that they do get that I think we miss is that he does bless us he does bless us they get that love is not selflessness and you know there are some Christians I think who've confused their faith with Buddhism because they think it's all about being selfless and you know you can't enjoy anything you've just got to be like a, mar a martyr in the worst sense the whole time and uh, they forget that actually, to love your neighbour as yourself, you actually have to know how to be loved, don't you? You have to know how God loves you in order to love other people. Selflessness is Buddhism. Love your neighbour as yourself. Or, or to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. You have to have a full heart and a full mind and be strong. <laughs> they get that. And sometimes I think we err on the other side. You know, We're so busy making sure we're not like into prosperity or that sort of thing that we forget that actually... We bless our blessing. We bless our blessing. And this is the flip side, really. Vocation, not vacation, is just thinking, actually, if we passively receive God's blessing, but we just think that we're kind of like, uh, that's the, that's the uh, final stop on the station, as it were, for God's blessing, then we, then we act as servants, don't we? We, just, we receive our pay, we receive our blessing, we get something good from God, and we take it home and we enjoy it. 
That's where the prosperity stuff goes wrong, isn't it? That's vacation. We get our money, we book a cruise, we don't do anything else. We get our lovely house, we make it perfect, we never invite anyone in. You know, that, that's, that's vacation. And God wants us to move beyond that to vocation. So using everything he gives us to bless other people. Using everything he gives us to bless other people. You know, something we looked at uh, last week, we were preaching out of Epiphany. We were talking about the baptism of the Lord. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit descends and uh, it changes our view of our circumstances. It's like the Holy Spirit is coming down on the world and he changes how we view God's dealings with us. We go from outsiders to insiders. Do you remember that? I hope so. <laughs> that was like the main point last week. Anyway. <laughs> but that descent of the Spirit onto creation isn't just, about, isn't just about changing our circumstances. It's about changing our view of everything. Like the Spirit is on the world, filling the world, so that we know that everything God gives us is a gift to be given back to him and to be given to other people. You see that? It's, it's, it's actually kind of the same message. Everything that exists is ours to be given away. It's not ours to be given away. So we move from vacation to vocation, from being blessed to overflowing of blessing. So you have money, God has blessed you with wealth or relative wealth, and God is expecting you to bless others. You've got a successful business, you can bless others in the way it's run, and the people you employ, that sort of thing. If you've got a nice house, you can be hospitable. But you can use it to rest well so that you can work hard and bless other people. You've got possessions, you can give them away, you can use them to bless others. You've got abilities or talents, you can use them not just to make yourself feel good, but to to enrich the lives of the people around you. If people think that you're good-looking or beautiful by the world standards, you can use that to bless people. You've got character strength. That's not just about getting a good job. It's not just about providing. God wants you to use your character to bless other people. You know, there's particular challenges, I think, where this hits home. We have, we have a, there's a phrase in football that I was reminded of on Friday when we were thrashing the other team on Friday night. And, uh, <laughs> no, it didn't happen. <laughs> um, and someone said jokingly, oh, it's time to park the bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Park the bus in football means when you sort of, you know, you stop trying to attack and you just draw up a defensive line. You don't, you try your best to stop the other team from scoring goals. You know, there can come a time in our life when we park the bus, can't there? And that's what I mean by vacation over, over vocation. I think it particularly happens as we get older or if we come into a time of real uh, um, financial security. We can lock ourselves away. I mean, like, I've arrived. I don't want to lose anything. <laughs> I'm just going to wait. Wait till the Lord takes me home. I'm not going to risk anything. I'm not going to... <laughs> you read to your testimony this morning. Yeah. It was a bit like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And I was told by the Christian friend, use it, use it, use it. Yeah. So I don't. There's a great temptation there for security. <laughs> just to keep yourself to yourself and just wait for the Lord yeah. to come home. And watch television. 
What's, what's TV? I mean, it's... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, if your TV's not broken, yeah. <laughs> or, but you, or you've got neighbours who are a bit challenging. You know, or you perceive them as that, or you've heard that they are. That temptation just to hide away and not say anything is so strong, isn't it? We, yeah, go for it, yeah. Now, I... I and two hugs as well. <laughs> there's a richness that comes, isn't it? And I think there's a very specific temptation that comes from what I've seen that comes with uh, older age. A very specific temptation to hide away, to park the bus. And God says, you know, vocation, not vacation. Now, that's true as we're younger as well. It just comes in different ways, doesn't it? Like I say, with financial security or, you know, busyness at work or something like that. But yeah, so how do we move from um, civility to sonship? Seek vocation, not vacation. God wants us to use everything we have to bless others. Okay, thirdly, those are the two biggest ones for you to count in the minutes. That's nobody until I said that, isn't it? <laughs> God wants us to be, uh, he wants us to pursue nobility, not to purility. That's a word before anyone shakes their head at me. <laughs> he wants us to be noble, not puerile. Noble, not puerile. Now, this is a, it's a, it's a subtle point. Let me try and illustrate it, though. There's a sense... You know, um, I feel sorry for people who go into public life now who've had a past on social media. You know, like politicians or... Um, when you get into politics, people will dredge your Twitter account to find out the kind of things you said back in 2005. Back to like when you could make a joke about a man wearing a dress or something like that. And everyone thought it was funny, and now like you can't say that stuff because the world's changed. Not, I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying that's a good example of how the world changes quickly. Uh, and you know, people go back and they'll use that to accuse you of the things. Uh, you know, and it's it's this world where you can't forget your past. Well, you know, that's a, a fearful thing. Uh, you know, I think of poor Prince Harry, and it, you know all the stuff they're going through. And you know, he just went to a party in a Nazi uniform. Do you remember that? Just about. There is a sense, though, in which God wants us to be aware. And, and you think of those people, if they were really thinking about what they were going to be later on in life, they probably wouldn't have said those things or acted that way. You know, and that's why people had a problem with Harry wearing a Nazi uniform. It's not, well, maybe it is that nobody can do that, but particularly you can't do that if you're a prince, right? Because one day you're going to be a ruler. God does want us to be aware of our destiny in how we behave now. You know that? He wants us to recognise, to act with nobility. Act with nobility. Act like our lives matter in eternity. Act like we're going to be somebody someday. Does that sound too vague? You understand what I'm saying? The Bible makes the point quite specifically. Paul says something really weird. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 6 3, there's a, in the church in Corinth, there's all these legal arguments going on. They're suing each other and they're gossiping and backbiting and so on. And because they're, like, they're bringing in judges from outside the church, literally judges from outside the church, to, to try cases between believers. And Paul is fed up with their childishness. And he writes to them. He says this kind of thing that we don't really understand exactly what he means, but he says, 1 Corinthians 6 3, don't you know that one day you will judge angels? What does that mean? I'm not really sure like how that works, what the context is, where that will happen. But do you see what he's trying to do? He's actually trying to blow their minds by saying, you're behaving like children. 
Don't you get that you are children of God? You have a destiny that is mind-blowingly big. I think he's deliberately obscure to kind of shock them into, hang on a minute, we are just living like, we're living in pure our ways, childish ways. God wants us to be noble, not pure. And I think, you know, that for us, that really, I think in specific ways, that touches our lives. I find it really interesting. I think this is particularly for men, particularly for us guys in the room. I think there is, there are two particular temptations for men. There's abdication of responsibility. That's pure art. You know, when you're just like, you can't be bothered to do the hard stuff and you just want to be left alone. <coughs> That's one of my biggest temptations. I just want to be left alone. The Bible has a lot to say about that. And it also has a lot to say about coarse joking and foolish use of words. Why? Why is that such a big deal? It undermines our sense of identity. Who are we destined to be, men? It's not just about like changing the patterns of mind or that sort of thing. It's about that understanding of identity. It's like Harry wearing a Nazi uniform. Sorry to pick on him, but a difficult time, but you know, he's not listening anyway. So. But that's what but that's what you know, that's what God is saying. For women, I think slightly different. Gossip, yeah, that was one of the ones I was going to mention. Gossip is puerile. It's unbecoming of God's people. It just doesn't reflect who, you're, who you are and who you're going to be. And fear, giving in to fear, letting your life be ruled by fear, is pure art. You know, when you just, and I'm not talking about when it masters you, when, it's, when you're really, um, I'm talking about when you have a choice. No, not when you're gripped by it, but when you have a choice. God wants us to grow up. And when we do that, we begin to experience the same. We begin to experience a joy, a richness of our lives. It gives us a confidence. This is who we are. So God wants us to be noble, not pure. Fourthly, God wants us to <clears throat> obey the spirit, not the letter. The spirit, not the letter. You know, we uh, there's been a trend in sort of Christian life, particularly in the the West over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, to downplay the place of morality or moral obedience, the place of the law. We've talked about that in other sermons. There's a, there's a trend to downplay, to, uh, the, uh, downplay the place of the law in the Christian life. Because we really want to emphasise the spirit of the law. We really want to emphasise that we're free and all that sort of thing. But actually, morality in and of itself, and you guys are familiar with this point from other things you know, we've talked about, morality, God's law in and of itself, is not like an enslaving thing. It's beautiful and good. Understanding it and living the, uh, the moral life that God gives us gives us joy. Like when we live God's way, it enriches our lives. It gives us stuff to be joyful about. It gives us blessing and it gives other people something to look at and go, wow, they live differently and this is amazing. But God wants that to flow out of not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. <coughs> not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And what that means is God wants us to understand his law as his children, not as his servants or slaves. We can obey God's law in a sense like um, we can obey it just because the Bible says so. Is that a bad thing to do? Caught, caught now, aren't you? Because you're not sure I'm going to go with this. <laughs> is it bad to obey God just because he says so? No, it's not. (laughs) 
It's not bad to obey, the, obey God just because he says so. But, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, I had a different illustration, but I was sitting there with Nathan in worship and had the usual battle this morning we have every week, which is he doesn't want to sing along. <laughs> you know, and I try and make him, firstly with authority, you will get up or I'll punish you when we get home. <laughs> He's lying on the, on the chairs. I try and coerce him. I try and say, if you join in, I'll, I'll give you sweets when we get home. <laughs> I didn't actually do that today, but sometimes I do. Uh, I, I try and make him feel good about worship. I put my arm around him. I make sure it's like a time when we're close together. You know, and I'm trying to balance that with him not feeling like church is a duty and a burden. If I succeed in all those things, I still haven't succeeded. If Nathan sings all those songs like with absolute gusto and gives all the impression of obedience, but he's basically doing it to feel close to his dad or because he's going to get sweets or because he doesn't want to get shouted at. I haven't achieved my goal, have I? What is the goal of me getting that obedience in the first instance? Yet yeah, he understands worship and he begins to worship God for himself. That's what God wants in terms of our obedience to the Lord. He wants us to be, God, I'll do it just because you say so. But he wants us to move from that to, I'll do it because it's beautiful, because it gives good results. I'll do it because I'll, I'll live your way because I, I, love, I love your law. <laughs> That's what David says, isn't it? I love your law. That's not Old Covenant. That's not just for the Old Testament. God wants us to love his law. Every command he gives us is, a, is a, uh, an example of how to love. How to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How to love your neighbor as yourself. It's an illustration of how God has loved us. And as we meditate on his word, as we think about his commands we begin to get this understanding of what love is. And it gives us joy. And it moves us to tell people, not just, not just that you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die, but that your life can be radically changed by the law of the Lord. That's the promise in the Old Testament to, to Israel, isn't it? My law will go out for you like, a, a, to, like life to the nations. That's part of the gospel, isn't it? This transformation of life through understanding of the way the world works. Delivered through the Spirit, by grace, in Christ. Not as an external command, but something that rises within you. So here's the thing. God wants us to move from, from the letter to the Spirit. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. That's what we're talking about. So when you come across something in the Christian life, a command of God, whether you hear it from another Christian or you read about it in the Bible, Here's what God says. You don't, yes, obey, but don't just obey. Meditate on my law. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask me to show you what is the spirit behind it. If you find yourself obeying it, but you still don't really want to obey it, ask me to change your heart. I will change, that's what God promises. I will write my law on your heart. I'll make it so you love it so much that you want to do it. That's, I just think that's such a wonderful promise. I, that moves me to want to tell people about the gospel. It moves me to want to introduce people to Jesus. Because he's written this law on my heart. Not perfectly, not yet, one day. But as much as he has already, I just want to share that with people. It's so wonderful to obey God from the heart. So, the spirit, not the letter. Fifth, God wants understanding more than blind faith. Actually, two, these two things, are, the last point and this point are related. But it goes beyond 
morality, beyond moral obedience. It's good to fear God, isn't it? And just to obey him, cover that. But you know what the Bible says? The fear of the Lord is what? Yeah, the beginning. (laughs) That's important, isn't it? It's the beginning of wisdom. Here's what it says in Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 9. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forsake my words or turn away from me. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honour you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. She will present you with a glorious crown. So like with Nathan and worship, another example is, let's say you had a business and you wanted to pass it on to your son or daughter and you employ them as like a junior and you show them the ropes, you say, Mondays this is what we do, Tuesdays this is your job. You show them that everything works. But one day they're going to take over the business. It's not enough that they know what their job is, is it? They have to understand what is it we're actually trying to do? What are the values? What's the product we're trying to produce? What's the service we're providing people? They need that deeper understanding. That's what God wants from us and our faith. He doesn't want only blind faith in you. He wants understanding. You know, the more, very simple point, the more you understand your faith, the more you will tell people about Jesus. I had a friend, one of my first examples of like going out on a limb to tell someone about Christ was my uh, best friend when I was a kid, a guy called Ian. And I was convicted. I went to this <laughs> Christian camp, as you do when you're a teenager, totally convicted by God, telling them about the gospel. And I spent the whole morning like nervously working on the courage because I thought, basically, he was so not interested. You know, we'd never talked about it before. I just thought, this is going to be the end of our friendship. This story doesn't end well, by the way. I'll give you a heads up. <laughs> I mean, not badly, but not very well. Uh, I spent the whole morning, like, you know, I still remember walking around the field, but I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I went around to his house, and I said, I've got to talk to you about something. And that was weird, because we basically just played, play, um, not PlayStation, Mega Drive, up until then. <laughs> and uh, I said, you need, you need Jesus in your life. And I told him, I just gave him the gospel as I've been taught to. And I thought I did a pretty good job. And he says, oh, I don't get why I need it. And that's basically, you know, about 20 minutes we talked about, I don't get it, I don't get why I need it. Like, because if you don't believe in Jesus, then you won't go to heaven and you'll die. You know, and you won't have forgiveness for your sins. It's like, I'm not really sure I've done anything wrong. I'm not sure I'm really bothered about where I go when I die. You know, and I was excited about that stuff because God had put that on my heart. But you know what, there are probably a dozen other ways in addition to that that I could have explained why you needed Jesus. They were all led to the cross. Dozens of ways where, not just like techniques of talking to him, but actually things where I could have been passionate and said, this is why you need him, and this, and this, and this, and this. But my limited understanding of my own faith meant that I was only able to deliver that gospel message in one way. Now amazingly, God does use that, doesn't he? But the deeper our understanding is, the more able we are to share the gospel with people. The more we see it in our own lives and understand what God is doing in our own lives, the more we want to share it with people. God wants us to seek understanding. He wants us to be equipped to share. And so, just a simple point. How we move from blind faith to understanding because it is too small a thing for you to 
be my servant. So just to say this, a really simple application, it's good to pursue understanding of your faith. You're not, there, is a, there can be a tendency within some traditions in Christianity to, to want to understand your faith like a nerd, you know, just to gather information, just to be an expert in the Bible so you can rattle off all the you know, characters, you know who's like the oldest person and that sort of thing. You know, just for knowledge for its own sake. You've seen that, right? Maybe you've even been a bit like that. I certainly have. But God wants us to study our Bibles. He wants us to read what other Christians have said. He wants us to be, he wants us to have understanding so that we have joy about our own faith and so that we can share it with other people. I think that's pretty simple for you. Read the Bible, spend time in those things, ask the Holy Spirit, think and pray, and God will give you deep, deep uh, joy and freedom in your faith, and it will spur you to tell others. Lastly, God wants us to move from religion to relationship. There's a, one of the guys from Gilgal shared a, a video online, it was last week or the week before, and it was just like some nine-year-old kid preaching. Have you seen? Have any of you seen something like that? Like a like a really enthusiastic <laughs> kid, and he, and he was preaching in some Pentecostal service somewhere or other, maybe in Brazil or something. And he was all dressed up in a suit, like his dad and that sort of thing. And and he was saying this stuff and being really, really enthusiastic. Uh, but it was fairly evident to me that this kid didn't know what he was on about. He was just repeating things he'd heard, you know, certain ways of standing, and you know. Uh, you know, expressions and enthusiasms, that sort of thing. He was just aping, aping someone he'd heard. And some people really love that. They look at that and go, isn't it amazing? It's like an amazing preacher. But actually, it's just a kind of, it's kind of a facade. It's just an appearance. You know, our habits of faith, church, prayer, Bible study, all those things, are meant to bring us into relationship with God, aren't they? When we come up for communion, that's to bring us into relationship with God. If we're not careful, these things can be so all-consuming, we forget what they're for. They just become habits. We become people who ape religious behaviour. And we forget that they're meant to introduce us and enable us to have a relationship with God. We are not servants. We are God's children. I've said this before recently, but you know, when we pray, the difference between good prayer and bad prayer is that you mean it. That you turn your attention to God. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier, which is, for most of us, is like you can do it almost literally in your sleep, can't you? What's the difference between saying the Lord's Prayer with meaning and not? It's turning your attention to God and remembering you're in a relationship with Him. What's the difference between an empty ritual, something we do near the end of the service, we come up and do it every week? And the real meaning behind the Lord's Supper is that you realise it's for a relationship, that God wants to be close to you. That in this meal, he gives a special grace that unites you to Christ, causes love into your heart afresh, so that you can have a relationship with him. What's the difference between dutiful evangelism or no evangelism and, actual, and wanting to share the gospel? It is your relationship with God. Are there parts of your life where your religious habits, no matter how unreligious you think they are, have become just habits. 
a form of godliness, but without the power. Maybe your quiet time, your Bible reading, your church attendance, your communion taking, your whatever. God would just challenge you again to make that into relationship. So six things, how we move from being servants to sons. Do you get what God's saying to you this morning? It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. I love that ending in Isaiah. It's it's so beautiful, isn't it? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about Jesus. He says, uh, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up in your presence and princes will bow down. I just wonder if the people of Israel could even, could even begin to get into their heads the plans God had to bless the world through them. He told Abraham, hadn't he? He told him, I will bless all nations through you. I just, even with this, even so clear, I just wonder, how, could they even get how amazing God's plans were to bring the gospel and salvation to the ends of the earth? I don't think we get it either. Not, we get the kingdom of God better than they did because we're living in it. But I don't think we can get the plans God has for us. One day you will judge angels. I don't know what that means, but I know it's going to blow my mind. You know, I know when uh, John falls down like a dead man in the book of Revelation at the beginning when he sees Jesus, his glory unveiled. You know, it's not just Jesus' glory that should shock us. It should be that that same author says, we do not yet know what we shall be, but we know this, when we see him, we will be like him. And that changes everything about the way we see our lives now. 